choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 263 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, the launch. The accident was set up five years before we took off. At that time, NASA told all of the contractors to make the spacecraft compatible with, I think it was 65-volt DC power available at Cape Kennedy even though the spacecraft batteries on fuel cells produced 28-volt power, and that's what we flew with. But the higher voltage at the Cape would allow certain tests to be done a lot quicker. So they said, just make all the systems compatible to handle the higher voltage. Everybody did, except the company or the fellow that built the heating system in the oxygen tank. That little heater, which was a combination heater and a fan to stir up the liquid oxygen, and a heater was used in case the pressure dropped a little bit. You could turn on the heater system. The liquid would boil off and build the pressure to keep feeding the fuel cells and the, keep the spacecraft pressurized and, and you know, oxygen and breathe. Uh, the thermostat in that heater system was compatible with only 28-volt power. That was the original design of the thermostat. They never replaced it with one that would be compatible with 65-volt power. That was the first incident that occurred. Now, that discrepancy was on all the flights from Apollo 8 all the way through Apollo 13. That was Jim Lovell speaking about one of the problems of Apollo 13. During the Apollo era, North American Downey built the Apollo Command and Service Module. After each completed spacecraft, NASA conducted formal reviews of the build paperwork before each vehicle was accepted for flight. Review teams went to Downey, California from NASA's Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston to conduct the review for each of the vehicle systems. The teams were made up of NASA engineers, General Electric engineers conducting quality reliability and Boeing engineers participating as part of the Apollo TIE team that was contracted to support NASA after the Apollo 1 fire at the Kennedy Space Center. All the build paperwork was available to the review team, and if the review team couldn't find what the team needed for review, North American Downey supplied it. To understand the data reviewed by the team and the subsequent Apollo 13 accident, a quick review of the cryogenic fuel system is needed. The hardware was installed on a pie-shaped shelf located in the service module 
where most Apollo command support systems were located to create as much room as possible for the crew in the command module. The fuel cell cryogenic system was designed to provide electrical power, potable water, and breathing oxygen. Three fuel cells combined oxygen and hydrogen gases from cryogenic tankage within each of the 31 connected individual cells to produce electrical power and byproduct water. Oxygen and hydrogen gases were supplied by two oxygen and two hydrogen cryogenic tanks. Each tank contained, first, two fans located on the top and the bottom to de-stratify or mix the cryogenic liquids in zero gravity. Second, a fill-slash-empty tube down the center of the tank to enable filling and emptying cryogenic liquids from the tanks for ground test. And the third item was the heaters. They were used to raise internal tank pressure for gas delivery. The oxygen cryogenic tanks also provided the oxygen needed for crew breathing. The fuel cell and oxygen tanks were connected to the command module via command and control cabling wiring for electrical power distribution and plumbing for supplying breathing oxygen to the command module. A line from the oxygen cryogenic tanks supplied oxygen to a small gaseous storage tank located in the command module for crew breathing distribution. This oxygen supply line could be isolated from the service module by a manual valve located in the command module. Several other things happened in the design of 13 and the construction that led to the accident. One was the fact that when the oxygen tanks were being put into the service module of Apollo 10, not 13, uh, they dropped the tank. Not far, just a couple inches, they dropped the tank. And consequently, they took it out, checked it all over again, but never checked to see after they put liquid oxygen in the tank that they could detank it, which is a way you, you do in just in testing to, to push gaseous oxygen in and force the liquid out. Uh, but everything else worked perfectly. Now that tank was then recycled, not to Apollo 10, but to Apollo 13. The review team discovered that during manufacturing of an earlier Apollo service module for Apollo 10, the fuel cell cryogenic shelf received a severe impact as it was being removed for maintenance. A crane connected to the front of the shelf broke due to not removing a bolt holding the back of the shelf to the structure, which resulted in the shelf being snapped back into its resting place. The review team rejected the shelf until x-rays could be taken of the cryogenic tanks to ensure there wasn't any internal damage incurred by the shelf drop. North American Downey stated they could not do tank x-rays, so the team rejected the shelf for flight until it could be rectified to be flight-worthy via x-ray inspection. 
after the Apollo 13 review, somehow, totally unknown to the review team, this shelf was installed into the Apollo 13 vehicle. The changeout was accomplished after the review team had formally accepted the vehicle for flight. The team never witnessed any data relevant to how this was authorized without clearing the tanks via x-rays. The fuel cell cryogenic system underwent many checkout tests on its way to being launched, the last one being at Kennedy Space Center, which required the cryogenic tanks to be filled in order to verify the command and control of the fuel cell cryogenic system, including verifying operation of the three fuel cells and the hydrogen and oxygen tank internal fans and heaters operation at cryogenic temperatures. Upon completing the system checks, the cryogenic liquid had to be drained from the tanks using externally supplied pressure to empty the tanks using the tank's internal center fill slash empty tube. But during this procedure, it was discovered the tanks could not be emptied using this method. In order to empty the tanks, the internal tank heaters were turned on to create the pressure necessary to empty the tanks. This turned out to be a critical mistake. Someone got the idea, well, why don't we turn on the heater system? It's in the tank. We'll boil the oxygen out. After all, the tank worked perfectly for everything in flight. The only thing we couldn't do was remove the oxygen after a test, which we never have to do in flight anyway. Everybody agreed that said that's not a bad idea. Let's just turn on the heater system and, and, and uh, boil out the oxygen. They did turn on the heater system. There were two ways of testing how hot this heater would get. On the, on the control stand or the test stand, there was a gauge, a temperature gauge. Now, the little thermostat was supposed to operate at about 80 degrees. If it got up to 80 degrees, the little contacts of the thermostat would open up, shutting off the power so it wouldn't get too hot. The temperature gauge to check how hot the, this uh, heater system got was calibrated only up to 80 degrees. Another thing we had, we had telemetry, a little readout, a little line that would go along, and when the power dropped off, it would go to zero, and then when the thermostat closed again to turn the power back on, it would go on to one. It ran continuously for eight hours. No one ever checked that. With that background information complete, let's continue on to the launch. On April 11, 1970, after the traditional breakfast, the astronauts put on their suits. Here's a clip of Fred Hayes describing suiting up and boarding. We suited up in a building at Kennedy called the Operations and Checkout Building. We're breathing oxygen out of those canisters, preparing ourselves, uh, getting rid of nitrogen uh, in our bloodstream, because the capsules of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo all operated at 5 PSI, 100% oxygen. It saved weight and structure to operate at that lower pressure. We climbed aboard this, uh, I think, a converted milk wagon. NASA had uh, painted up fancy. We had benches we sat on, and we could talk on the intercom to the suit techs as we went out to the launch pad. It's, it's kind of eerie that day you go out there for real because there's normally a lot of workers up and down that stack, and the day you go, you got the two suit techs with you, 
and there's four people waiting at the top to get you strapped in and uh, get hatch closed and pressure checked and ready to go. I was one of those four people on both Apollo 8 and Apollo 11, uh, ready in the capsule for the crew. In Mission Control in Houston, Milt Windier, a veteran of three Apollo missions, drew the launch flight director's assignment. Milt had earned his spurs as test director in Chris Craft's recovery division, not in Mission Control. But his transition was smooth and he was absolutely unruffled at the console. Milt emulated Cliff Charlesworth's low-key and patient demeanor. He was fully in command of his team when the moment came to light the fire on Apollo 13. By now, the Apollo moon launches were considered routine, at least by the media. But the TV networks were still there, and we have Walter Cronkite and Wally Sherall to give us the final details before launch. This afternoon, scheduled for 2.13 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, just 36 and a half minutes from now. They should reach the moon at about 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday. They touch down on the moon uh, at 9.55 p.m. on Wednesday. The first walk is at 2.25 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, early in the morning. Uh, second walk at 10 o'clock that night. The liftoff from the moon then the following day at 7.22 in the morning. The docking uh, with the LEM returning to the command module where Swigert will be waiting at 10.58 a.m. on Friday morning. They leave the moon at 1.42 p.m. on Saturday, splash down a little south of the equator out in the mid-Pacific at 3.17 p.m. on Tuesday, April 21st. If the flight of Apollo 13 goes as the others do, they'll be right on target within a couple of miles of where it's been planned for them to drop for the last two years and uh, they'll be right on time within a few seconds of that uh, planned landing time, which is one of the remarkable feats. A half a million mile voyage, uh, uh, four days around the moon and back uh, to Earth and be right on time, just as they planned it in the book. And under reasonably clear skies, a high haze still, but no serious weather problems. We're waiting for the launch of Apollo 13 with some 21 minutes and 25 seconds left in the countdown before the launch, scheduled for 2.13 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We had some reference earlier today to the number 13 in this uh, flight. It is taking off at 2.13, it is Apollo 13, and they'll be the 13th and 14th and 15th men to go to the moon. Uh, so, but none of them seem concerned at all about the numerology involved in the thing. Uh, the uh, launch, all the countdown is going well with Jack Swigert now in that little command module pilot seat instead of Ken Mattingly, who may be coming down with the measles. We're going to have a new voice of Apollo here for the launch phase uh, at the uh, Cape today. Uh, Chuck Hollinshead, uh, who has been a deputy to Jack King, is taking over the voice job today. Jack King uh, wanted to see one of these launches from outside. It's a temptation, I guess, for everybody who's locked in the control room uh, during, the, uh, during the launch. So Jack King is uh, out at the press site uh, to see for the first time uh, other than on television, the launch of an Apollo uh, spaceship. 
And we're going to be hearing from, instead, Chuck Collinshead, who's been drilling long as the backup man to Jack King as the voice of uh, launch control. We ought to hear an announcement from him just about now. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, T-minus 19 minutes, 59 seconds, and counting. Now, at passing the 20-minute mark in our countdown, and the spacecraft test supervisor has indicated that they're running just slightly ahead of that in their countdown. The command module pilot, Jack Schweikert, is now pressurizing the service module reaction control system. This is the system on the service module, which consists of four quadrants with four engines each. Each one of these develops 100 pounds of thrust. He's arming these systems by letting the hypergolic fuels, these are monomethyl hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide, flow down through the system down to the final valves. Hypergolic fuels ignite on contact, so once those final valves are open, they would ignite and the system would be activated. Swigert also reading out the temperatures and pressures of that system. The countdown moving along well at this time, T-minus 19 minutes, 4 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. I've often wondered whether Jack King and Hollinsett have a book from which they're reading all of that information or it's all back there in their heads. I suspect a combination of both, but at any rate, they do terrific jobs. Really, it's a, an extraordinary performance that they put on in keeping us so uh, uh, so clearly uh, informed about every move that's going on out there at the launch pad. A lot of things that the average uh, viewer and even those of us here relay the two, uh, our viewers out there, don't really need to know, but it's, uh, it's terribly fascinating information. They, uh, incidentally, speaking of viewers, uh, the, there's still a large crowd here for the launch of Apollo 13. There's some uh, 7,500 uh, invited guests, uh, or more than that, I guess. There are 11,500 invited guests from NASA. 7,000 are said to be at, uh, at the uh, VIP uh, viewing stand over on the causeway, a couple of miles from here. And here at the uh, VIP uh, site right here at Launch Control, another 4,500 guests with the principal ones being uh, Vice President Agnew and uh, uh, Billy Brunt, uh, the West German leader who is on a visit to the States and has come down to watch this launch today. He has reason to be proud. So many of the important people in our American space program are from the a German rocket program who came here their own volition uh, immediately after the war, choosing the United States over Russia, knowing that their talents were going to be required by one of the two uh, conquering nations. Bruce Morton at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston has a report on how the families of these astronauts are getting along. Bruce? Well, I'm tempted to say this is another report from uh, Measles Central. I don't think we've ever talked about a children's disease this much on a space shot before. Marilyn Lennon is uh, over where you are. She's at the Cape with their four children, one of whom, four-year-old Jeffrey, has come down with the real as opposed to the German measles, but uh, that apparently hasn't interfered with his going to see the launch. Mrs. Fred Hayes is here with their three children. Her sister's come to watch the launch with her. She, incidentally, is expecting their fourth child in June, about a month after her husband is due to get out of quarantine. Jack Swigert, of course, has no family, uh, one of the very few bachelor astronauts, uh, like Ken Mattingly, whom he replaced. But he does have a lot of friends here. We talked uh, for a couple of minutes with the manager of the apartment building where Swigert lives. She uh, just couldn't find enough good things to say about him, uh, brave, courteous, kind, all the adjectives in the Boy Scout manual, and said her only regret was that this whole switch happened so late she couldn't get a party together to watch the launch. Walter? 
As a matter of fact, I understand that uh, Jack didn't even have time to get any of his friends down here to watch uh, this launch. Uh, he uh, was hoping that there is a father and mother, his father is an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor in Denver, that they could come down, but uh, apparently it was a little late for them to make it, and uh, so they're going to be watching the launch uh, from Denver. I'm uh, amazed to hear you say, Bruce, that uh, uh, one of the Lovell children, the one down here at the Cape, has come down with measles. Uh, I saw Maryland Lovell last night. I have not had the measles, so I am assuming that uh, the command structure at uh, CBS will remove me from the uh, rest of this mission and turn it over to uh, my backup man, Wally Sharon. <laughs> I just contacted the measles I got. <laughs> Well, you've got to go through a few immunity tests and things like that first, well, too. Kick, kicking a lot of you around. I wonder if Jack King might just possibly have the measles, and that's why he's not on the air today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I saw him outside, too, so we're all down. It's a, it's a problem, I guess. The uh, CBS News color coverage of the launch day of Apollo 13 will continue in a month. Now that the preliminaries are over, let's light this candle. We will rejoin Cronkite and Sherall at less than a minute and a half to ignition. Keeping an eye on that power transfer at T-minus 50 seconds. The S-4B propellants now all pressurized. S-4B propellants, that's the third stage of the Saturn V pressurized. One minute, 15 seconds, and counting. The spacecraft equipment now is on its own internal cooling. It's been uh, sharing its cooling from it, getting its cooling from an external power source up to this time. We're now approaching the T-minus one minute mark. T-minus one minute. T-minus well, one minute. Even, uh, and counting. We're buffeting today now because of the low cloud cover. Of our countdown. We get quite a shaking the here. That may uh, keep the sound uh, down. You're right. Interesting. Let's we'll see if the place holds together. As we pass the T-minus 50 second mark, the power transfer takes place. First stage, second stage, third stage, and the instrument unit going to internal power. T-minus 37 seconds, and our count continues to go well. We'll be looking for an ignition of those five first-stage engines at the T-minus 8.9 second mark. We've passed T-minus 30, T-minus 25 seconds, and counting, and Apollo 13 is go. T-minus 20 seconds, T-minus 20 seconds, and counting. 17, guidance release, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, Eight. Ignition sequence has started. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit and we have liftoff at 2.13. The Saturn V building up to 7.6 million pounds of thrust and it has cleared the tower. It's another beauty. No, I think it's a jet flight. Uh, the projector looks good. They show <laughs> one half mile in altitude at this time. 13 Houston, go at 30 seconds.
vehicle miles. Downrange, one mile. And we're still seeing it quite well through that haze. All sources continue yeah. to report where it go. The trajectory on our plot boards is right on the pre-planned -pre line. That's a good one. Looks like a very good one. There, there you can see that. And Booster Engineer reports we're now through the region of maximum dynamic pressure, and we're go. That's one of the areas you worry about is that maximum dynamic pressure, because every bit of that outer surface is sensitive to this tremendous pressure that builds up due to the velocity in the atmosphere. Yeah, really, uh, that's probably one of the more traumatic periods for training, at least. 13 Houston, stand by for mode one, Charlie. Mark, you're one, Charlie. Mark, one, Charlie. Oh, and good communication. Your go for staging. Everything. 17 miles coming up on staging. Everything right on uh, time. Staging coming up. That means the cutoff of the uh, first stage engine. Jim Lovell reports the inboard engine has shut down as scheduled. Amazing, that big booster is already history. <laughs> we confirm inboard out 13. You're looking good. Roger. It's due to. Uh, that big booster splashes down in the... Coming up uh, on 30 miles altitude. Splashes down in the Atlantic uh, in about uh, 20 minutes. You can oh. see uh, there, uh, that's one of the uh, uh, static no cameras. Condition. They're washing down. Yeah. Thousands of gallons of water pour forth there to, uh, to cool and to put out any little fires that may have started. 13 Houston, trajectory's good, thrust is good. Sets by those pollution-minded people. Uh, that was hydrogen and oxygen, so we weren't polluting today. <laughs> That's the interstate. We confirm skirt set. Roger, tower jet, mode two, Jim, looking good. Mode two. Do you see the launch tower off? Now they can look out, too. That blue protective cover goes with that tower. It's like an ice cream cone over the top. And, and as a result, now the windows are all uh, open to view. This is the first and view they've had. Yes, it is. There's one small window that they can look at, of course, to communicate with people outside the spacecraft when they're on the launch pad. Communicate with visual signals, I mean. And now, all of a sudden, there are two guys that are looking at that same beautiful view you've been hearing us all talk about. And it really is a beautiful minutes. view. We're now at an altitude of 63 miles. That boost cover is on there because uh, uh, the heat builds up uh, on launch to 400, 450 degrees and also scores the windows. And yes, that's exactly Keep right. them clean. You know, another, another interesting thing that maybe not many people realize is that the men are actually heads down at this point. They go into Earth orbit with their heads down. So it's sort of like flying through the top of a loop as you go into orbit. It's a rather unusual attitude. Is it disturbing? No, no, you become acclimated to it, but uh, it was quite a surprise to me after having gone into orbit in Mercury, heads up. And then all of a sudden, on Gemini, I went into orbit, heads on my side. <laughs> we finally rotated the full 180 to head down on this flight. The, uh, that first stage, which is now... miles downrange now, the uh, ECOM reports... About five minutes, you're looking perfect, over. 13, Roger. Gee, Jim, reports that the cabin pressure is sealed at 6.1 pounds, which is normal. Nice, clear. We're now 250 miles downrange, altitude 81 nautical miles. That, uh, that uh, first stage booster is going to plop down the Atlantic about 400 
2.5 miles. They've got it pinpointed exactly uh, downrange from here in another five minutes. Shipping has been warned to stay out of the way after some of the Apollo 11 parts dropped on a German ship out in the oh, middle really? of the Atlantic. Uh, and yeah. in five minutes, 30 seconds. Did you heard launch, that the, uh, to look very good on the S4B of Apollo 12 is in Earth orbit and uh, uh, solar orbit? No, it missed just a little bit. And as a result, it went into Earth orbit. It's a no way, way out, way out yeah. one. Yes, I don't think it'll drop in just now. <laughs> stand by for S4B to COI capability. The launch was going well until a sudden glitch. The center engine on the second stage shut down early. You may have heard Jim Lovell asking Mission Control what the story was on that. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 263 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, The Launch. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I would like to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. We currently have the first 77 episodes available on the Space Rocket History Archive. If you're looking for the first 77, that's a good place to find it. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all the popular podcatchers. And we also have them available on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Today we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thank you, Patreon donors, for your continued support. Okay, I had several afterthoughts about this episode. First, I want to credit my sources. Uh, We had a very special primary source for this episode, and I really want to thank him, and that is Mr. Richard Rasa. He worked in the Apollo Fuel Cell Cryogenic Group, supporting NASA for all the lunar missions. And he was an invaluable primary source for this episode. I really appreciate Mr. Reza writing up his thoughts for this episode and we taking the time to give us all this information. Thank you very much, Mr. Dick Reza. My other sources were A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, The Apollo 13 Flight Journal, Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, Kennedy Space Center and the Johnson Space Center and Wikipedia. Well, we ended on a little bit of a cliffhanger. The center engine of the second stage cut off too early. Why did that happen? Will Apollo 13 make it into orbit? We will find out next week. (laughs) Make sure you 
Download next week's podcast to find that out. Well, did you find it interesting how routine it now seemed to be able to land on the moon? The country had already done it twice with Apollo 11 and 12. How easy it was to forget the close calls in both those missions. The 1202 alarms and a margin of only 18 seconds of fuel for the Eagle to land on Apollo 11 and the lightning strike on Apollo 12. Mr. Cronkite mentioned the precise timing and the precision targeting that we were now capable of. It was all too easy to forget what a complicated machine NASA was launching and how important the smallest of parts could be and how everything had to come together so precisely for it to be successful. Okay, I've posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive seven donations to support the podcast over the past two weeks. Jim E. donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Dominic V. from New York donated at the Apollo level. Braun M. from Australia donated at the Mercury level. Eric P. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level with rocket and moon emojis. Paul S. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level with rocket emoji. M. Olson pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And David B. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Believe it or not, our Patreon donors are now at 175. We have crossed the 174 threshold for a new record. The goal for this year is to reach 218 Patreon donors. And we have now reached 301 total donors with the goal of reaching 418 by the end of 2018. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. Now, for those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week, we are giving away the new official SRH logo magnet. It is 3 inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number, then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Jeff Decker. Jeff Decker, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 264 out by next Thursday. So long for now.